0: And welcome to the Tobolowski Files A series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood As told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky I am David Chen And joining me today He is the man who played Milt Flack In the 2001 TV series Off Center Stephen Tobolowsky Stephen, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing okay Uh, Was Marky Post in that show?
0: You know, I'm not sure I'm not sure. You have the IMDb there. I got the IMDb. Here is the here is the plot summary of Off Center. Yeah, a British stud and an American doofus share an apartment in Manhattan.
1: Sounds like my life.
0: <laughs> and apparently, uh, John, a very young John Cho was in this uh, show. Oh god, John
1: it. is such a great actor. Yeah, let me t- let me just talk about John Cho a little bit, please. Uh. I may have mentioned to you, maybe at some point, that for my 37th birthday, Anne and I were in Stratford-on-Avon. And so for my 37th birthday, Anne bought me a set of Shakespeare original punctuation, the entire folio of of Shakespeare. Because we thought our life together was only going to be doing Shakespeare— well, I never did a damn Shakespeare play in my life since I got those Shakespeare books. Never. Except once. And the Royal Shakespeare Company came to Los Angeles and they wanted to do a reading of Hamlet. And they called me up and asked me if I would read the part of Polonius. And at that reading of Hamlet, John Cho was playing Horatio. And He was magnificent, and we talked to each other during the break, the intermission, and John was a huge fan of ours, David, of the podcast, and he was talking about how much he loved the podcast, and I was talking about how he was knocking my socks off doing Shakespeare. So when you see Harold and Kumar and all that stuff, just know that John Cho is a master of doing Shakespeare. He's a great actor.
0: Well, that's cool, and you got to work with him in Off Center, yeah. uh, <laughs> play, playing a character called Milt Flack. You know, sometimes I look through the IMDb, Stephen, I see a guy named Milt Flack. I'm like, that sounds totally like someone Stephen would play.
1: Yeah, exactly. And did you see how I was trying to pivot away from this show <laughs> that I couldn't quite remember, a Marky Post? And if, if this is the show I'm thinking of with Marky Post in it, she was a rocket scientist, for real, you you know they they the old joke. Well, you're no rocket scientist. She was, she was some sort of physicist before she was so gorgeous and was able to act that they started giving her acting parts. If this is the show I'm thinking of, but there, it's there hard is to say.
0: there is no evidence that Markey Post appears in this in this. Well, show.
1: then it, it may have been <laughs> a, at another one of these <laughs> sitcoms that happened at the same time. I have this, you know, I'm having covid brain. Steven, you're getting
0: getting loopy here. You know, we're recording this podcast. We're doing something that we haven't done uh, ever before, which is we're banking every episode of the new season before we even start releasing them so we can make sure we have a consistent release schedule. We're recording this in August of 2020. Uh, It it will likely be released in December, January, you know, time (laughs) period. So you're kind of, you have the opportunity here to speak to your future self, Stephen.
1: And oh God. the
0: question I have for past self, Stephen, is how have you been dealing with this whole coronavirus pandemic situation? How's how's that been going for you?
1: Oh, man, it's been rotting my brain. I, for example, the other day I was sitting in my backyard and uh, rain clouds, the rare rain clouds in Los Angeles had vanished. Birds were chirping. It was so peaceful, it was hard for me to remember, David, that this was the beginning of the end of the world. I made up a scientific fact that gin and tonics and sunshine could protect me from the coronavirus. I'm lucky. Sunshine and gin with a slice of lime can usually make me happy. I found that the simpler and more accessible the things are that make you happy, the luckier you are. Living in Los Angeles, never have to worry about sunshine and gin Yeah, they deliver. I was watching the bees in the lavender. Their behavior was different than usual. Instead of swirling in a vortex high above the hive, which they do to get their bearings before hunting for pollen, they were flying low, close to the ground. I remember the old poem my brother taught me from our childhood book, Everyday Weather and How It Works. When birds fly low... And salt clogs the shaker, the weather will favor the umbrella maker. I instantly made the assessment that the sunshine I was enjoying was short-lived. More rain was on the way. And the bees were right. Two hours later, Ann and I were huddled indoors as a new line of thunderstorms made their way into Southern California. I knew all of that without science. Bees and childhood poems did the trick. This is no disrespect to science, it's just the way people operate. You don't need an astronomer to enjoy a shooting star. Most of us don't feel significantly enlightened by knowing the difference between a meteorite and a meteoroid. Despite the fact that our lives are exponentially better because of scientific discoveries, we usually go with what we know, or what we think we know, whether we know it or not. Humans have always had a respect for being clueless. My father used to instruct me with proverbs. What you don't know can't hurt you. And ignorance is bliss. There's a lot of wisdom to support this. Once people know things, they usually can't function. After I broke my neck in Iceland, the Icelandic doctor told me I had a possible fracture. I had no idea I had what an American doctor would call a fatal injury. If I did, I probably would have died. Instead, I walked around Iceland for ten more days in a government-issue-one-size-fits-all neck brace eating hot dogs. Delightful. Ignorance is more than a lifesaver. It's a great narrative device. The most popular section of most public libraries is called mystery. A mystery is just a story where no one knows what's happening. The existence of mysteries opens the door for the existence of the person who knows the answer. From Inspector Bucket to Nancy Drew, there are the few, the brilliant individuals who saw the clues hidden in the tapestry of nothing. In books, these people solve the murder. They find the treasure. In life, these people often have a lot of power. It could be the world leaders of the G11 conference or the judges on Chopped. Rabbis, ministers, and priests all wear special outfits to indicate they know something we don't know. When I was a freshman in college, I met Boyd. He was 19, like me, but his eyes blazed with a passion that set him apart. He told me he had one consuming goal in life, to be the head of Demolay Politics for the state of Texas. I had no idea what Boyd was talking about. But his ambition to climb the mountain and rule all of the Demolay Molay people beneath him made him quite admirable to me and quite attractive to several girls I knew. So much so, I even considered joining Demolay Molay just for the ladies, even though I probably at some point would have to lick Boyd's boots. I suspect at one time or another, we all have the fantasy of being the person with the answers. When I was in fourth grade... I fantasized that one day I would be king of the world. Now I can't think of a worse job, except maybe being the driver for the king of the world. The history of people who knew, percentage-wise, not that impressive. Twenty people were hung at the Salem witch trials. Those in charge not only knew God, but they knew how to spot a witch. And that's nothing compared to the 2 million killed by Pol Pot in Cambodia, the 45 million killed by Mao Zedong's re-education efforts. It makes sense. When you really, really know the answer, you want to educate others. And if they can't grasp the lesson, kill them. Humanity has a history of bringing horrors into the world, not by accident, but because someone knew the formula for blessing. Child sacrifice isn't limited to Abraham and Isaac in the Bible. Archaeologists in Peru found a mass grave for child sacrifices that were performed as recently as the 15th century. Scientists speculated these murders were committed to end a prolonged drought. In Uganda, the police have recorded over 40 human sacrifices just since 2015. Officials suggest these children were murdered to improve luck in gambling. There's a temptation to see the human desire to control the world as being the result of the primitive or the power mad? Not necessarily. Closer to home, in the 1960s, the Santa Fe Railroad joined with the California State Division of Highways for Project Carry All. This was a plan to use 23 nuclear bombs to blast the Bristol Mountains in the Mojave Desert to allow for straighter interstates and rail lines, which could result in lower transportation costs, except, of course, for avoiding all the giant Gila monsters from the radiation. Bad science and bad beliefs never come with a warning label. The magnet that draws human behavior is mystery. Seems like a paradox, but the allure of mystery is the end of mystery. We want to know what happened, or not. Each individual decides if he or she prefers the answer or the question. Besides our natural love of ignorance, from the lilies of the field, to the noble savage of Rousseau, to hippies at Woodstock, over the years we learned that knowing isn't always what it's cracked up to be. When our youngest William was three going on four, beanie babies were a new thing. Footnote After hula hoops and before video games, beanie babies were a craze. They were stuffed dolls in the shape of animals. They were small, visually unimpressive. However, someone, probably the manufacturer, spread the word that they were collectible, and some of them were even rare. It was not uncommon for hepcat parents in an attempt to display their hepcat creds to buy their children beanie babies as an investment. Yes, as an investment. Not shares of Apple or Google, but the Brontosaurus Beanie Baby, because the word on the street was that Bronte on the collector's market could be worth 10 grand or more if there were a bidding war. I just looked it up as of March 2020, Sidebar on the footnote. There are several mysteries here. Why do some things become a craze and others not? What need did the Beanie Baby fulfill for children, for grown-ups? Why did adults who went to college believe that a mass-produced stuffed doll would be suitable for a portfolio? Are these people who believe in anything or people who believe in nothing? Little William loved the white beanie baby dog we got him. He called him Elvis, carried him everywhere. He slept with Elvis, had meals with Elvis. One day Elvis went missing, and our world came crashing down. William spoke in sobs, interrupted occasionally with a word sequence that didn't make sense, like, Elvis gone, he go away, Elvis bye-bye, Elvis bye-bye in the ground. After an intense grilling, I got the idea that William had buried Elvis alive, somewhere, and the clock was ticking. William pointed out the back door to our overgrown yard. It would be a challenge to find a beanie baby out there. But mystery was driving me. I was consumed by the question, Where is Elvis? I had to find the answer, if only to stop William from crying. I was certain the answer would be far less interesting than the question of why William buried him in the first place. William took me to the little shovel he used. He couldn't seem to pinpoint the exact location of the burial. We narrowed the gravesite to a strip of land along the back of the property. Here? I asked. William shrugged and nodded. I didn't have confidence this was the spot, but William seemed comforted that I was going to dig. So I shoveled i pointed point at the ground. William would nod, yes, I dig, nothing, dig, nothing, nothing, and nothing. Elvis was gone, never to be found. William got over the loss pretty quickly. Our babysitter didn't. Jennifer said, you lost Elvis? Yeah, I said, wait, William buried him in the backyard. No, he's a collector beanie, baby. He's worth a fortune. Huh, what, what? Yes, he's one of the rarest of them all. He's worth thousands. You're kidding. Jennifer shook her head and looked ill. She weakly tried to make me feel better. Well, it's all right. He probably wouldn't get top dollar after being buried. The original line of Sparky the Dalmatian. I just looked it up. As of March 2020, $70,000. $70,000, buried in my backyard 20 years ago. Never found, doesn't matter. I'm sure he's turned to mulch. He will forever reside there and in my recurrent nightmares. If only I had let William have a good cry, but no, mystery called, and I had to ask why. What you don't know can't hurt you. My father was right. I know that knowing has generally been a good thing. It's saved m- millions of lives, vaccine, sunscreen, no-lick envelopes. Refrigeration alone has changed the course of history and made Florida habitable. Occasionally, finding an answer can create more mystery than the original question. When knowledge becomes mystery, we call it revelation. Psychotherapist Carl Jung had a profound experience while he was walking through an art museum. He was taking in an exhibit on the drawings by alchemists from the 15th to the 17th centuries. Jung always had an interest in how men and women dealt with the complexities of the human experience before psychoanalysis. Jung went to the museum expecting to study ancient symbolism. Instead, he was shocked to see that some of the drawings depicted the exact images his current patients described from their dreams. How is this possible? 400 years separated the alchemists from Jung's patients. Drawings done before Isaac Newton reappear in the unconscious mind in the post-Einstein era. Jung came to the most obvious conclusion, that the psyche evolves like the physical being. It seeks metaphors to describe its evolution. Some of these metaphors become universal, timeless. Example. One of the drawings from the 15th century depicted a veiled woman approaching an individual as a guide into the afterlife, which is the same description given to Jung by one of his patients in the 1930s which is the same experience I had in the 1980s when I dreamt I was in a plane crash and I was met by a woman at a park. She sweetly explained to me that I had died and welcomed me to my new world. It is the persistence of vision. An image travels across centuries to unravel a mystery to the dreamer in the present. The question is, do we find the dream or does the dream find us? And this is not just a matter of semantics. It goes to the nature of man. Are we part of a greater whole? Do we have more in common with the butterfly or the star? That would explain the various phases of evil versus the evolution of morality. It would explain why every stage of man's evolution has honored the dream. From the Neolithic cave paintings of Lascaux to the prognostications of Joseph to the dreams of Thomas Aquinas, to Jung's theories of the collective unconscious, to my recurrent nightmares. Baby, when I met you, there was peace unknown. I set out to get you with the fine tooth comb. I was soft inside. There was something. Do something to me that I can't explain Pull me closer and I feel no pain Every beat in my heart We got something going on Carl Jung stated that mystery doesn't behave mysteriously. It speaks openly, but in a secret language. Just like the real nature of matter was unknown to the alchemists, the real secret of our nature are presented to us in dreams directly, but through a series of hints we must decipher. I had a dream in January 2020 at the beginning of the end of the world. I'm not sure that the dream is important, but i become increasingly curious as to why it will not go away. Parts of the dream come back to me almost daily. The tone of the dream was realistic. No one was flying around the room. It was not a version of anything that happened to me, even though it featured people and places I knew. I was running through the lobby of the Los Angeles Theater Center. And the theater looked like it did when it opened back in 1985. I was late for a performance. I usually like to get to my dressing room about an hour and a half before a curtain, and I had a sense it was just before half hour. So I was cutting it close. I sensed I was doing a Chekhov play, and it could have been The Three Sisters, one of the plays that opened the Los Angeles Theater Center. The lobby was empty except for my old friend Jim McGrath. I patted him on the leg and thanked him for coming. I ran into Theater One, the largest theater of the complex, the Manny Rice stage. There were about 30 or 40 people sitting in the audience. I couldn't see anyone's face and I had the passing impression that these people didn't have faces. Before I had a chance to find out, I saw someone I knew. It was my dear friend, my old college roommate, Jim McClure. Jim passed away a few years ago. Jim saw me come into the theater, and he smiled. Hey, Patasey, glad you made it. Footnote, Patesi was Jim's nickname for me. We took art history together and learned that in early Mesopotamian civilization, the Patesi considered himself the font of all knowledge and wanted to be worshipped as a god. Jim called me this out of loving disrespect and mockery. Even though I was late for the show, I stopped and sat down with him. He looked good. We both did. And I realized we both looked like we did when we were in our 30s. Good luck, buddy, Jim said. Well, thanks. I think you'll like it, Jim. It's a good show. Without saying anything, Jim leaned over and kissed me on the cheek and said, You're doing good, Rumi. That's not fair, Jim, I said. Jim smiled and said, What's well, not fair? Well, now I'm crying and I've got a two and a half hour show to do, but I'm so glad you're here. While I was dreaming, I realized that this was the opposite from an actor's nightmare. I had no anxiety. I knew my lines. I knew the show was good and that I was good in it. Jim interrupted my musings about the dream. Hey, Patase, you still have your hair. Yeah, Jim, and you're still alive. Jim shrugged and said, Yeah, we both look younger than we deserve. And here's the part of the dream I keep coming back to. I said... Jim, we are who we are when we're truly born. What we appear to be on the outside is just the scoreboard. Our faces show wins and losses, but none of that is really us. When we're young, the score is close, one to nothing, three to two. We still believe we could win. But when we get older, the losses mount. Our biggest losses are to gravity, and one day... We realize all of us are the Washington generals playing the Harlem Globetrotters. The Globetrotters are gravity. They always win in the end. The most we can hope for is to have a few laughs along the way. And then I woke up. Aristotle suggests that the purpose of all dreams is to attain knowledge. I've been trying to figure out what my dream was telling me. Someone once advised me that the first step in analyzing a dream is to recall how the dream made you feel. So, I felt happy and confident. Friends were everywhere. Jim McGrath was sitting in the lobby. He was one of my closest friends at SMU and was our neighbor when Beth and I moved to Los Angeles. Sitting in the theater with the faceless strangers was Jim McClure. Lord, Jimmy and I had more adventures than I could recall on stage and off. The simplest reading of the dream was that I took the right road in becoming an actor with a love for the theater. But why a play of Chekhov? And why at this theater? I've been at so many theaters and done so many plays in my life. The Three Sisters was in 1985. 35 years ago, why the ancient history? And my conversation with Jim, most of the time when I talk to people in my dreams, it makes no sense at all. But this dream made so much sense, it woke me up. I even woke up Ann and told her. And she murmured, "Uh, Scoreboard? Don't forget that. Write that down. Jim, we are who we are when we're truly born. What we appear to be on the outside is just the scoreboard. Wow. Is it possible that my dream was trying to tell me that this moment, performing The Three Sisters at LATC in 1985 was when I was truly born. It's possible. The Los Angeles Theater Center is where Ann and I began to work together regularly. Two years after we did The Three Sisters is when we we began to keep company, as Ann Coyley puts it. The non-Georgia translation is, I began sleeping over, we became a couple, I became a father. This production also marked a crisis. Like many in my life, It was dressed as good news, so I never saw it coming. After I was cast in The Three Sisters, I had an audition for a movie, Rat Boy, a comedic action film directed by Sandra Locke, produced by Clint Eastwood. I told my agents at Triad that I was doing The Three Sisters. I was playing Tuzenbach, a great role. My love interest Irina was going to be played by Elizabeth McGovern, great actress, Steinvinga, the National Theater of Norway, was directing. And on top of all of this, the play was going to be one of the four plays opening the new theater center. It was as big a deal as theater gets in Los Angeles, a city where theater often has to compete with mud wrestling and foxy boxing for attention. My agent handling the movie said I should go in anyway, meet Sandra Locke. It couldn't hurt. Oh, mystery. So I went in. I met with Sandra. My agent called me two days later with the good news I got the part in the movie. She told me I should drop out of the play. The movie was more money, and it's a movie. I told her to find out if I could do both. Maybe I could shoot my part in the movie after the play finished? No. The movie wasn't going to change their schedule. My agent said I could get an understudy for the days I was shooting the movie. Well, what days am I shooting, I asked. They don't know, she said. Well, this is going to be a mess. I don't want to be confusing. The play is important to me. I've got to do the play. My agent took a deep breath and said, We'll talk more later. Later turned out to be the next day. I got a phone call. I assumed my agent and I were going to hash over dates and the importance of doing movies instead of plays. Not this time. She said as soon as she answered that it was going to be a three-way conversation, she was connecting me with Clint Eastwood. What? Clint came on the line. I stammered, uh, uh, Mr. Eastwood, Clint interrupted my blathering. So, I just have one question. Are you doing the play? Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I told everyone before I auditioned. At- Clint hung up the phone. Silence. Then my agent began, you fool. What are you doing talking to Clint Eastwood like that? I I, I just answered his question. I don't need to work for someone who won't take jobs when they get them. I felt defensive. Well, actually, that's incorrect. More than defensive, I was angry. I said, the way I understood it, you were working for me to help me get the jobs I want, and to make sure that I'm treated fairly. I could see you being mad if you jumped through hoops to get me this part, and then I pulled the play out of thin air and threw it at you, but you knew about the play before I auditioned for the movie. And this phone call was not fair. You threw Clint Eastwood at me with no warning, just to pressure me to drop out of the play. That is not protecting me. There was a pause. She said, Stephen, I'm sorry. I try to help people who know how to help themselves. I can't help you. She hung up. So at this point, my film career was effectively over. Later that day, Diane White, the executive producer of the theater, called and said she was told by my agents that I was probably going to have to drop out of the play to do a movie. She wanted to know if they had to recast. I said, no, 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 no. I'm doing the play. She said, good. Do you know anyone else who could play Irina? Elizabeth McGovern just dropped out. She got a movie. I didn't know anyone who could take over the part. I had difficulty casting the leading role for one of Beth's plays, the debutante ball I had just directed at South Coast Repertory. I called the actresses I knew that would be great for the part, Holly Hunter, Amanda Plummer. No, they were both busy. The only candidate left was a girl the people at South Coast loved. Her name was Ann Hearn. I was desperate to cast the show, so I was hoping this Ann person could be the answer to my prayers. She was not. Ann's audition was one of the worst I had ever seen. The theater insisted I give her another try. I did. Terrible again. And one more time. Worse. I had no idea what was wrong. For her audition, she would sit in a chair with a baseball cap pulled down over her eyes, and mumble. One of South Coast's producing directors, Martin Benson, said privately to me, Stephen, trust me, as a man and as a director, you'll want Ann Hearn in your play. I had no idea what that meant. I said, Martin, I can't cast this Ann Hearn person based on her auditions. Who is she? What has she ever done? Uh, she was in A Life at Theater 40, Martin said. Wait, 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 wait. Martin, I saw that play. Who was she? Well, she played young Dolly. My jaw dropped. You're kidding. Well, that actress was wonderful. She was spectacular. Well, yes, that's Anne. This is the same girl. So, I cast Anne Hearn in The debutante Ball. And she was everything they told me she would be. And more. She got every laugh. She broke every heart. When there were problems during the performance and there were plenty with a short four-week rehearsal schedule, her skill and her quick wit turned disasters into wonderful moments. As a show of support, Stein and Diane drove out from Los Angeles to see the production opening weekend. They came up to me after the show and Diane said, "'What do you think of this Anne Hearn as Irina? She's terrific.' So Anne took over the part from Elizabeth McGovern. For those who wish to jump ahead of the story, no, there was no romance blooming on stage between us, none at all. There was something potentially more dangerous, something with more staying power, mutual respect. So in my dream, maybe Jim was there to greet me in this theater, to honor the time and the place of my true birth, even though I arrived late. I love this version of the dream. I recognize some of the elements don't fit. Most dreams are screenplays that need another rewrite. It's hard to separate the random from revelation. First, I was troubled by how relaxed I was before the show. Not like me at all. I don't quite understand the people in the dream. There were two that I knew, Jim McGrath in the lobby, Jim McClure in the theater, But what about the 30 or 40 dark forms without faces sitting with Jim McClure? Who were they? Why were they there? Were they extras? Oh, I forgot an important fact. In real life, I went back to the Los Angeles Theater Center several weeks before I had this dream. Before the lockdown. This was the first time I'd been back to this building in years. The institution of LATC was long gone. Now it was just a concrete shell with theater spaces for rent. Anne was directing a reading of Visiting Hours, a new play by Jamie Brandley, winner of the Humanitas Prize Play L.A. Award. Footnote. I met Jamie Brandley about three years ago when Anne directed her play Through the Eye of the Needle at the Road Theater. Jamie has the unique ability to write hilarious plays about horrible subjects. Child sexual abuse. Depression, divorce. Through the Eye of the Needle was about a family's first Christmas after the death of their child. Hilarious. How does she do it? You got me. She writes brilliant, beautiful plays that break your heart, honor the victim, honors their courage, and makes you laugh. She's something of a miracle. While I was waiting for the reading to begin, I decided to walk around and rekindle old memories. The challenge was, nothing was the same. The lobby had changed. Doors were in different places. I walked into Theater One, where we did The Three Sisters. The Manny Rice stage was empty. It was dark except for the ghost light on stage. I walked through the auditorium, up onto the stage, looked out at the seats. This view was familiar. It felt like home. Before every performance, I have a routine. Standing on the empty stage, looking out at the empty house This is why I usually arrive an hour and a half before the show I'm not sure when this became a tradition, maybe in high school I enjoyed the feeling of the energy of nothing So I don't get overwhelmed by the energy of something once the play begins While I was standing on stage I remembered something that only a few people could have known The Three Sisters was one of the first productions in this building. We started rehearsals at a hotel on Ninth and Grand. We moved into the theater three weeks before opening. The first thing we did as a cast, before rehearsal, was to run to our new dressing rooms and claim our places in front of the makeup mirror. There was something wonderfully Soviet block about the theater's plan for makeup rooms, all of them in, from all four plays, shared one long dressing room, and all the women were in their communal dressing room next to ours. There were going to be 30 or 40 actors sharing the mirror every night. That first day, the three sisters cast wandered through the dressing room in awe. I found my spot by the western wall. I looked at myself in the mirror for the first time at LATC. I was 34. I had hair like in my dream. A familiar voice shouted out, Hey, Tobo! It was Bill Pullman. Bill was opening in another play that first week, William Master Simone's Nanawatai on stage three. He pulled out a sharpie and said, Let's honor the opening. Bill signed the wall of the dressing room. Seemed like a good idea? Our cast gathered around and signed. Clifton Young, Kim Cattrall... Meg Foster, Ari Gross, Bruce Wright, Ann Hearn, and I signed the wall. On the day of the Jamie Brandley reading, I wondered if the dressing rooms and where we signed the wall still existed. I ran off stage right into the stairwell. I could climb these stairs in my sleep. I got off on the second floor. There was the door to the men's dressing room. My heart was pounding. I walked in. Nope was no longer the same room. The once-long room had been subdivided with painted sheetrock into several smaller rooms, probably easier to rent out. My makeup spot was no longer there. Maybe it was next door. I went down the hall. There was another little makeup room, and there was my blessed spot before the mirror. I sat down and looked at me, and now I was 67 and bald. In the reflection of the wall behind me, I saw odd smudges. Could it be our signatures? I ran to the back of makeup room number two, and there were our names, some of them. I should have submitted the scene to Sharpie for a commercial. There was Bill Pullman, Susan Tyrell, Tony Geary, along with bits and pieces of other signatures obliterated by the remodel. I tried to picture in my mind where I signed the wall 35 years before. And I studied the scribbles and the spackle, and there I was. My signature. Well, part of it. The first two letters. But they were mine. Capital S, little t, then sheetrock. I did a quick Terminator scan of the workmanship. Shoddy. Probably done by a theater apprentice 20 years ago for free. There should be another room on the other side of the wall. I ran out of the dressing room, down the hall to next door. It was unlocked. I turned on the light to little dressing room number three. I inspected the separating wall. More names of actors from those early years. Tom Newman, Stefan Girash, Pam Greer. And there, sneaking under the sheetrock, was WSKY. The Russian spelling. Thank God for a long name. I was gone, but not forgotten. This monumental discovery in the makeup room happened before my dream with Jim McClure. This could have filtered into my subconscious. This could be why I wasn't anxious about being late for the theater in my dream. In truth, the curtain came down on my days at LATC 30 years before. But I still wondered who the shadows were sitting in the audience. Could they have been all the actors I worked with who are now just names on the wall? Why didn't they have faces? Maybe because they're no longer the people I knew. Sidebar. There is a built-in deception in the Tobolowsky files. It's easy to assume that I'm the same person who told you stories about love, life, and Hollywood when the podcast began in 2008. I am not. My little boys have grown. Anne and I have been tested by unexpected disasters and equally surprising good fortune. If I ran into Aristotle, and could speak ancient Greek, I would ask him if one of the purposes of a dream is to help us make sense of time. For example, I understand why Jim McClure was waiting for me in the theater. Jim and I were together at many crossroads in our lives. We met the first day i left home for college. Jim was my roommate freshman year. He was there when I fell in love with Beth, and when I battled Joan Potter throughout my years at SMU, he was there at my opening night on Broadway. The last time I saw Jim was after I had open-heart surgery, and Jim was dying of cancer. We spent a wonderful two hours planning a production of his new play. Jim passed away two days later. Gone, but not forgotten. The problem with dreams is that they don't come with footnotes. Perhaps Jim wasn't welcoming me to the place where I was born into my true self. The bridge he was going to shepherd me across could have been a more somber one. When I was cast in The Three Sisters, I considered it a major victory in my life and my career. In retrospect, it marked a moment in my life when I was in great upheaval. I had probably just lost my agent due to Ratboy and Clint Eastwood. What I couldn't see at the time was that my relationship with Beth, which I always considered a constant, was over. I just didn't know it. When Beth and I fell in love, we had nothing. Sweet, sweet nothing. All good things like money and jobs and careers were somewhere in the future. All we had to worry about were theater history tests garage sales, and watching the ducks run back to Turtle Creek before a rainstorm. When you have no money, you have to be imaginative for dates. We'd listen to records in the music library. We would take evening walks to the 7-Eleven and buy a box of animal crackers. Then we'd open the box, close our eyes, reach in, and bet who got the best animal. Carnivores, usually one. Once we made a date to watch the dawn together spectacular when we moved in together in our apartment in dallas neither of us could cook but the first thing we did was buy dishes we assumed we would learn and use them someday virtue in the future more than romance we were floating on a gentle beautiful stream of potential all serious issues were somewhere around the bend so what did us in how did i miss it it was so subtle and insignificant It would be nice to tell you a typical Hollywood story of drinking and drugs and infidelity. But the real cause of the end of our relationship was dinner, and who would pay for it? When Beth and I first started living together, meals were never an issue. Fritos were a food group. The Subway sandwich shop was across from the drama department, as was Henry's, as was Dairy Queen. A meal would cost 2 or $3 max. When we lived in our little house on Hayworth Street, we ate peanut butter or bologna. Friday nights were restaurant and beer night with T-Bone and Betty. We usually went to the Bean for hamburgers, or Astro Burger for hamburgers, or Mexican food at the compost heap. T-Bone and Betty had temporary jobs for minimum wage. Beth was working at a dog food plant for the same I was Daddy Big Bucks doing children's theater for 240 $280 a week. From the start, Beth and I had an agreement to split everything. When we moved in together, we split the rent, usually with money from our parents. When we moved to Los Angeles, I paid the rent, Beth paid the utilities. Agreeing to split everything is a dangerous realm of virtue in the future. It's always easy to split nothing. When you start making money, things change. Beth got a $10,000 check for winning the Pulitzer Prize. She bought a washer and dryer for the house on Hayworth and a case of champagne. Man, we celebrated for a month. It was a time of complete joy and victory, more than anything I had ever experienced in my life. And then she started making more money and a lot more money. We never did learn to cook. When we moved to the house on the hill with the swimming pool, we took the one remaining bowl we had from our dime store dishes in Dallas. It was only used as a water dish for the pooch. We still ate every meal out, but Beth's taste had changed. Instead of Barney's beanery, she loved cuckoo's, and so did I. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't? And the owner would have a glass of wine with us and make some of her specialties as a treat. Or we'd go to Geo's on Sunset. Jonathan Demi recommended Bombay Palace on Wilshire. Eating at any of these restaurants was at least $100 for food, and then you add drinks on top of that, multiply that by seven days a week. My $250 a week for children's theater plus any Pathetic acting jobs I got didn't split that many ways. Beth paid for the house on the hill, she had it put in her name, and the car I drove. One night at Cuckoo's, I spoke up. Beth, can we try to eat at home once or twice a week? Beth looked at me as if I told her she looked fat in tights. What do you mean? She asked. Well, I mean, it's hard for me to pay my share. Sweetie! You don't have to pay your share. I'm a rich, 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 rich one. Footnote, Beth and I always joked about becoming rich, and she never said it in a crass way, even though it was beginning to feel crass because she was so rich. I know, Beth, but it still makes me feel creepy to live off of you. So what are you saying? Beth asked seriously. I could barbecue at home. I can pay for that. Salmon, steak, whatever you want. We have wine. We could eat very well without costing my week's salary every time we go out. And we eat like this every night. Stephen, do you expect me to live at your level? Now. Always. These are the good times, sweetie. These are the golden years, the champagne days. Can't we just enjoy it? No, Beth, I said. I can't. I have to drive. And there it was. Wrapped in that little conversation was the end of our relationship. It was staring me in the face when Beth won the Pulitzer. I just didn't understand the clues. They spoke to me in hints and whispers, like a dream. Beth's prize money purchased a washer-dryer and a case of champagne. Both represented luxury. We didn't have to go to the laundromat. We didn't have to drive to the liquor store. However... One represented chores, one represented celebration. Having nothing has an advantage. It's easily divided by two. When you suddenly have plenty, you have to learn a new math mathematics of abundance. How do you divide? Take celebration. When someone wants to drink champagne, someone else has to drive. When someone always wants to drink champagne, someone else always has to drive. It's a matter of science In spending the night in jail. Beth had lots of agents in New York and Los Angeles setting up meetings. She had to travel for openings of her play. When she was gone, the new division meant I had to take care of the house, the house I didn't own. I had to wait for the plumbers and the rat man and the gardener and the pool man. If that conflicted with any of my efforts to get acting work on my own, it was up to me to make the totals work out. That meant free dinner at Cuckoo's was no longer part of the celebration, but payment for my time. That's a shallow grave. When I got the part in The Three Sisters, it was an affirmation of who I was and what I came to Los Angeles to do. It was something I achieved on my own. Depending on Beth for my career may have started from a habit of our splitting everything, but once we were no longer dividing nothing— I was unprotected. Beth's agents and accountants were more than happy to make sure I got as little of the pie as possible. A painful example came up with my work on the movie True Stories. David Byrne asked Beth to write the screenplay. She didn't understand what David wanted, so she recommended me. That's typical behavior from our college days. We supported each other. David hired me to write the script. But for how much? I didn't have an agent. Well, I looked up the minimum for a screenplay under union rules was $7,500. I rounded it up to 10000 Still a bargain. David agreed on the price. Without knowing I was cutting my own deal, Beth's agent in Los Angeles said he could negotiate for me. He came over to the house and told me he got a deal. Great, I said. How much? $7,500, Mike said. $7,500. That's right. And I owe you 10%, I asked. He smiled humbly and said, well, <laughs> you know, that's the going rate. Mike, you're telling me you negotiated that I get absolute minimum? I hope you're doing a better job for Beth. I am, Stephen. I'm not your agent. The Dangers of Abundance. I never knew such a thing existed when I was in my thirties. Now in my classes, I try to explain to young actors hungry for their big break. They look at me like I'm crazy when I tell them, once you get the big job, their troubles may just be beginning. They smile, shake their heads. I see it in their eyes, silently saying, thanks for the warning, teach. Give me fame and fortune. I'll deal with it later. Maybe in my dream... Jim McClure was there simply to congratulate me for surviving. It's part of the scoreboard. When I fell in love with Beth, I was a man with potential. When I fell in love with Anne, I was a man with a past. There are advantages to both. When you have potential, you always look forward, hopeful for your big break. When you have a past, you always look back, grateful that you weren't broken. The one part of the dream I still wasn't sure about were all the nameless, faceless shadows sitting with Jim. One night, I was sitting at my computer, working on the story. I closed my eyes, tried to put myself back in that theater, hoping I could find an answer. I was sitting next to Jim. His face was shining, joyful. I whispered to myself, Why are they here? Are they waiting for the show to start? To my surprise, Jim turned to me and answered, No, Jim said, They've seen the show. Then who are they? I asked. Jim looked at the shadows and then back to me and laughed, You don't know Patesi? Seriously? No, Jim, I can't figure it out, I said. Jim leaned in as if to share a secret and whispered, They're you, buddy. They're all you. How many roads must a man walk down Before you call him a man How many seas must a white dove sail
0: before she sleeps in
1: the sand Anne and I worked regularly at the Los Angeles Theater Center for the next several years. We played leading roles, supporting roles. We were even understudies on a couple of occasions. But we only did three plays together, all three directed by Vinga. Ann and I were friends. We enjoyed working together. We appreciated that we'd probably do a good job no matter how weird the play was. We had an unusual asset. We could read each other's minds on stage. That created the appearance of what people at the theater would joke about as chemistry. And maybe that's what we had. Maybe Anne could read my mind offstage as well. The turning point in our relationship was not a typical Hollywood story involving sex, drugs, and alcohol. It was dinner. We were doing our third play with Stein, Tennessee Williams' The Glass Menagerie. Anne was Laura, I was the gentleman caller, which is as close to a romantic relationship that exists in that play. We had a full professional schedule eight shows a week with a four show weekend. That's rough. Usually, cast members ran to Clifton's or Irwin's for a quick meal. That gave you a chance to have a nap on the floor of the green room before the evening show. One Saturday, Anne asked if instead of going out, I'd like to have a picnic under the stage. That sounded odd, but convenient. Why not? After the matinee, Anne and I climbed through the steel girders to the concrete storage area under Stage 3. Anne had a picnic basket with roast chicken, fresh bread, vegetables. Where did you get this? I asked Anne. I made it. Pause. You made this. Yes, she said. I thought it would be easier than running out to the cafeteria. I took a bite. Delicious. I found myself unable to speak. I took another bite, almost started to cry. Is it all right?" Ann asked. "Yes, yes, I'm I'm sorry. It it's wonderful. It's <laughs> it's just been so long since I've had a home-cooked meal that wasn't barbecue." I, "This is really good, Ann. Thank you for going to all the trouble." Ann smiled at me. "No trouble at all." "Yeah. That was probably the moment One night when Ann and I were watching Taken on TV, she asked me what skills you needed to have a successful marriage. Here's one. If you live with someone who likes to cook, learn how to wash dishes. After my journey backstage of theater number one, I settled down in the lobby and waited for the doors to open for the reading of Jamie Branley's play. I had seen readings of Visiting Hours twice before, and I'm pretty sure it's the funniest play ever written about child sexual abuse. Maybe because Jamie was a victim. Therein lies her talent. She's brave. Sidebar. The day I met Jamie, when Anne was directing Through the Eye of the Needle, it was close to opening night. And Jamie, and the cast ran across the street to have a quick pizza after an afternoon rehearsal before an evening performance. I tagged along. While we were waiting for the pepperoni, I asked Jamie how she started writing and how on earth she found a way to mine so much comedy from such heartbreaking subjects. Well, that's the only way I know how to write, Jamie said. I have a playwriting hero, Paula Vogel and Beth Henley. I stared at Jamie Beth Henley. Uh she wrote Crimes of the Heart. It was a big play in the seventies, early eighties. She's from Mississippi Oh Jamie, Jamie. I know her. Yeah, I I know the play. I actually I was in the play. You were? I played Barnett Lloyd in Saint Louis. Anne interrupted. Jamie, Stephen knows Beth. Very well. Jamie blushed. Oh, you two are friends? You have no idea, said Anne. But go on. Jamie continued. The subjects I wanted to write about were so dark. Yes, I said, I think you could call them dark. Well, playwrights like Paula and Beth write hilarious plays about heartbreaking subjects. Shame, loss, suicide. It's a sort of permission, You can write about what hurt you and not be afraid of the jokes. Yes, they inspired me. They still do. It was the persistence of a vision. I had another dream. I was in a theater watching an old movie with Ann. I reached down for my popcorn and I couldn't find my box. I kept grabbing in the dark and I got hold of a live flopping fish under my seat. I pulled it up. It was about the size of a croaker, silver. It was flipping wildly. Its mouth was opening and closing, silently gasping. I realized I had to get the fish into water or it would die. Maybe I could run to the concession stand, get a big Coke, dump it out, fill it with water. But I could see even the biggest soda wouldn't hold the fish. I looked at it in my hand. Anne leaned over and whispered, What's wrong? I found this fish under my seat. If I don't get it to water soon, it'll die. Stephen, this is just a dream. I know it is, I said. Anne put her hand on my arm. You don't have an obligation to keep a fish alive you made up in a dream. I looked at Annie and smiled. Don't I?
0: That was the persistence of vision, part two, two dreams, and you're listening to the Tobolowsky Files. Wow, Stephen, pretty enigmatic ending there. Uh, no music here or anything. Very similar to the ending of The Sopranos, and I'm sure will be remembered similarly in for its controversy.
1: <laughs> I hope so, David. I. Yeah, you know, I have to say, I re- I remember the end of The Sopranos, and people were complaining about it a lot. And I looked at it, and I thought that was just outstanding—the way they ended that show. Just killed me, just killed me. One of the greatest shows ever.
0: Oh. Ar- ar- arguably, it killed Tony Soprano, but um, we'll never know. We'll never know. Well, if you're looking for more episodes of the Tobolowski Files, you can find them at TobolowskiFiles dot and you can find a video version of this podcast over at YouTube at youtube.com slash Tobofiles. Find my work online at davechen.net. And thanks so much to Simplecast for powering this episode of the podcast. Check them out at simplecast.com. They're a great podcast management and analytics service. Until next week, we'll see you then for another episode of the Tobolsky Files. Adios.
1: How can we be wrong, sail with me, to another world, and we rely on each other, uh uh-huh. heart from another world. to another.